Live from Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, Episode 4, Timothy Deal vs. Son of Kong. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the curator of this Monster Island Film Vault, Nathan Marchand, but I am not alone. With me today, as promised a couple of episodes ago, is Timothy Deal. (laughs) For those of you who don't know who Tim is, and for whatever reason are listening to this and not to our episode on the original King Kong, (laughs) tell us a little bit about yourself, Tim. Hello, my name is Timothy Deal. I am honored to be here today. I am not saying this because I was given an invitation to Monster Island and had to be flown back for my microphone, which I unfortunately forgot like an idiot. Okay, am I done? Uh, Jimmy told me to read this. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. I, that's really. I, I had to make sure I had fulfilled my contractual obligations. I know that's a big thing. Here oh, on contractual obligations. Yeah. It, the, came, it came with a ticket to Monster Island. So. Well, it's like, isn't it? The board, for some odd reason, is uh, taking a little bit of advice from this uh, this Mr. Wonka guy and with golden tickets and <laughs> all kinds like, of stipulations. Yeah. Around here. But yes, yeah. No. Um, it, thankfully, it, I haven't heard anything. We, we haven't had any problems with disappearing children here at, on the island quite yet. <laughs> Well, they, they got eaten, so I imagine that's why you wouldn't know anything. <laughs> Jimmy, what did I tell you about letting the kids get too close to the monster cages? <laughs> uh, you guys have got issues here. Um, <laughs> Do you realize how much paperwork that's going to entail? I, I just... Yeah, well, yeah. we'll just kind of skim past that. But uh, thanks for having me back on the podcast. It's it's fun. Um, in case for those who don't know, I uh, I co-host a podcast on all things related to storytelling called Derailed Trains of Thoughts. I was uh, here two episodes ago. Yes, and um, and we got to see the first King Kong movie, which was a lot of fun. So if you've never seen King Kong, you should certainly watch that first and listen to that episode first. Yes, uh, before because tackling Son of Kong. Here. Yes, yeah, I was about to say because today we will be looking at the sequel, the kind of overlooked sequel, Son of Kong. Yeah, this is. Uh, I guess this is be kind of akin to the sequel. I know there's like a book sequel to Gone with the Wind that no one remembers. Oh, really? Yeah, huh. yeah. I think it's. I don't remember the name of it now. Uh, uh, Jimmy will figure it out in his notes, I'm sure. <laughs> but yeah, everyone knows King Kong is a pinnacle of filmmaking, and Son of Kong is enjoyable, but not bad. Yeah, we'll get into that in a little bit. Not only will we be talking about that, but our toku topic for today will be on how 1930s films addressed the Depression, hence why I gave you all the details about the Depression in the last episode. There's some background for you. All right, but first, as per contractual obligations, because I don't want to make the board of directors angry at me again, we need to get Jimmy's entertaining info dump out of the way. We'll be back in five, six, seven minutes or so, and by that point, we will have watched Son of Kong. Kiko is a friendly and buffoonish 12-foot-tall albino baby Kong. He displays many more anthropomorphisms than his father, such as scratching his head in befuddlement. 
He befriends Denim and Hilda after they rescue him from Quicksand and defends them from several of the island's creatures out of gratitude. The prehistoric wildlife on the island this time around include a Styracosaurus, a cave bear, a Nothosaurus, or dragon, an Elasmosaurus, or sea serpent, and a Brontosaurus. They are aggressive and animalistic, attacking Kiko and the characters to eat them or defend their territory. Secondarily, they try to escape the island when it sinks. The guilt-ridden former movie director Carl Denham takes a job on the SS Venture to elude lawsuits filed against him for the damage caused by Kong. When Hellstrom tells him there is a treasure on Kong's Island, he seeks it to pay his debts and get rich. Hilda Helene Peterson, a feisty singer, stows away on the Venture after her father is killed to seek a new life and, implicitly, because she's in love with Denham. The level-headed and pragmatic Captain Anglehorn wants to escape his own legal issues and brings Denim on board so they can seek new fortunes at sea. Nils Hellstrom, a deceitful and self-serving former skipper-turned-bum, lies about the treasure on Kong's Island to escape prosecution as a murderer and leads a mutiny to acquire a new ship. The kind and loyal Chinese cook Charlie assists the protagonist at various points throughout the film, preferring them to the traitorous crew. While connected to the events of the previous film, the human plotline dominates the movie and remains separate from the monster plotline until the protagonists meet Kiko, after which the storylines become more unified. Interestingly, while the monsters hinder the protagonist's search for the treasure, it's Hellstrom who is the problem. The communistic crew throws him overboard with Denim and company after the mutiny because they decide they don't need a captain. A Styracosaurus chases Hellstrom, Anglehorn, and Charlie into a cave. Meanwhile, a cave bear attacks Denim and Hilda, but is defeated by Kiko. Despite Hellstrom lying about the treasure, Denim and Hilda find a temple housing a jeweled necklace. They're attacked by a Nothosaurus, but saved by Kiko, who slays the creature. During the earthquake, Hellstrom tries to escape in a lifeboat, but is eaten by an Elasmosaurus. Kiko holds Denim up long enough for him to be rescued by his friends as the island sinks beneath the ocean. The script by Ruth Rose, the wife of director Ernest Schoedsack, is a simple and well-paced adventure story with subplots centered on romance and some interpersonal drama. Willis O'Brien and Buzz Gibson returned to create the sequel's special effects, although O'Brien left during post-production due to creative differences with Cooper and Schoedsack. While their craftsmanship is still apparent, there are fewer special effects shots, and they lack the polish of King Kong, clear signs of this film's rushed production. This is especially true for Kiko, whose movements are more herky-jerky than his father's. However, the dinosaurs still look good by virtue of not having fur. The creature designs for the new monsters, like the cave bear and the dragon, are lackluster, though. Besides stop-motion, O'Brien and Gibson utilize the same techniques they employed before. Matte paintings, miniatures, superimposition, and rear projection. The monsters still have plenty of personality and energy. Due to time and money, a scripted dinosaur stampede was never filmed. This is a light film with plenty of humor, but a fair amount of gravitas because the characters are in dire situations. With the return to an island populated by a giant gorilla, dinosaurs, and other strange creatures, this is a fantasy film. The film isn't very experimental and doesn't take many risks. The film is an establishment of style in that it was made at a time when sequels were uncommon, beating Universal's Bride of Frankenstein by two years. It was the first Son of sequel, a motif that would be copied by other franchises, including Godzilla. The film was rushed into production as a cash-grab sequel meant to capitalize on the popularity of King Kong while it was still fresh. The film had a budget of $269,000, less than half of the originals to ensure success. 
When released December 22, 1933, it grossed $616,000, earning $133,000 in profits. It received poor to lukewarm reviews from critics at the time and currently has a rating of 5.7 with 3,573 ratings on IMDb. It was never re-released. There are several forces at play. Denim and Englehorn find themselves being sued by everyone in New York City, which compels them to run away and later seek a treasure. Hellstrom lost his ship through poor decisions and is now a street bum. Mr. Peterson's alcoholism cost him and Hilda their circus jobs, so they struggle as poor street performers. After inadvertently killing Peterson, the destitute Hellstrom lies about the treasure to join the Venture crew to avoid facing a magistrate. Denham rejects Hilda's affections because of his bad legal standings. The communistic Venture crew betrays Hellstrom because they, quote, won't have a captain. The unforgiving natives blame Denham for Kong killing their warriors and destroying their village. Man clashes with nature on Kong's island when the characters fight its hostile wildlife. Themes are more apparent in this than in the previous film. Both Denham and Hilda seek new beginnings after tragedy strikes them. Redemption and penance are displayed when the guilt-ridden Denim rescues Kiko and tends to his wounds. Alcoholism is shown to be a destructive disease. Denim learns to be vulnerable thanks to his budding affection for Hilda. Hellstrom is undone by his deception when the crew betray him and later by his selfishness when he tries to escape the sinking island alone. Good deeds are rewarded in the end when the protagonists find a real treasure. Gratitude and self-sacrifice are exemplified by Kiko when he protects the protagonist and dies saving Denim from the sinking island. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. Time for some Toku Talk. All right, now that we've gotten everybody caught up on this movie, it's time to dive in with some Toku Talk. All right, Tim, so for you, this was the first time, just like with King Kong, this is your first time seeing this movie. So, indeed, fresh out of the screening room, what are your thoughts? I, you can tell that this is a, meant to be a different kind of movie than the first one was. It's shorter, the pacing is a bit different. It's funnier. It's not nearly as dark and, and dire as the last one. It has its moments, though. It, it does. It has some intense moments. I mean, it doesn't. It can't maintain that insane, like fast-paced quality that the first one did when they were when they went on Skull Island and like something new was attacking them, like every two minutes. It, it can't keep that pace up. But it is very interesting and it's satisfying too. The, all the things that we talked about, like the consequences and ramifications of the last movie. I know that, that, dealt is, with at the that is my favorite of, part of the, of our conversation in that episode. All of you, you were just, you were just all making jokes about how, you know, denim would be sued and it would, you know, and all of these sorts of things. And then I said, you guys just predicted that uh, the sequel and you didn't know it. <laughs> well, and I guess it, it just seems like that's one of the things that a movie over uh, that time period would just kind of skim over. I guess in part because, and there may be more of these that I'm not aware of, but I I have not seen very many sequels from like classic Hollywood era that the, well, you, you were talking before during the, the movie, how like nowadays, sequels are always bigger and better than it was before uh, but like, apparently back then they actually tended to slash the budget you said yeah the at least with this one but my understanding was it seemed like it was common practice where if you did make a sequel you actually gave it a smaller budget even if the original was a huge hit because you were wanting to ensure profits. That's really what this movie was. It was a cash grab sequel. It was this movie is a giant hit. let's put out a second one. We'll put it out fast. And just to make sure we make money while cashing in on the popularity of this one, we're going to give it a smaller budget. <laughs> Once they get to the island, 
it is apparent that they didn't have as much time or money. And so, yeah, just the fact that, and maybe because a lot of the sequels got lower budgets, they never became quite as prestige pictures as the originals. And so that's why I'm not as used to seeing sequels from that time period. It was just fun to see all the consequences of the previous one play out and, uh, and also really flesh out Carl Denham's character. Yes. In fact, Robert Armstrong, the, the actor who played Denham, has, was quoted as saying that he actually preferred this one to the original, which seems a little bit weird, but he says it was because he got to do more with the character in this. Because this movie really is about Denim. Yeah, the previous movie, he was a major player, but maybe not necessarily. He feels like the protagonist at first, but then later as the movie, as the original King Kong goes on, he's, he's not quite antagonist, but he's he's more of a, he's there to serve a role as opposed to being the, the audience, audience protagonist. And this one, he is, it's it really is all about him and uh, <laughs> the consequences of what he has wrought. <laughs> That's the fascinating thing about all of this. I mean, it, it, it's not often that, at least at this era, because I've seen a few of the sequels that were made. Like this, the funny thing is, is this movie actually predates what are probably the most famous sequels of this era, which would be the sequels in the Universal Horror series. Oh, okay. That makes sense. And this actually predates all of them. The, from what I can tell, and Jimmy may correct me later, <laughs> the, the first one that I can think of for that was Bride of Frankenstein which was 1935, so it was two years after this. And it was four years after the original movie. That one is actually considered a prestige picture. It is actually one of the few sequels that people will make the argument is better than the original. Okay. And it is a fantastic movie. I, I saw it for the first time, actually, last year. It, and and it's, it's a wonderful movie. But the other sequels in that cycle don't have nearly as much prestige as the rest of them, much like this one in a way, because this one is, it's kind of a forgotten movie. And, and and I guess that's the other thing about sequels that with a sequel, you're not necessarily, you can't take for granted how much one will carry over into another one, especially I imagine with horror movies. Sometimes it seems like what's carried over is just the monster or the main thing. You don't necessarily have as many characters carry over because, well, in some horror movies, half the characters are dead. So Yes, <laughs> sometimes more than half. Yes. So, yeah, I thought that was unique. Mm -hmm. Well, and uh, going off of the sequel thing, and you may you may remember this from my previous podcast, but this was something that I discovered while I was on that show, which was a quotation from Ruth Rose, the co-screenwriter for the original movie and the singular screenwriter on this one. She said in, in when it came to writing a, a, you know, a sequel to such a big movie, if you can't go bigger, go funnier. And you know what? That that makes sense for from a, a screenwriting perspective. I think it also really makes sense from a special effects perspective because the the stop motion in this was was very enjoyable to watch. I don't know that it had quite the gravitas that the original King Kong had. It also doesn't have the polish. The yeah, and there's a couple reasons for that. One was time, two money. The other one was Willis O'Brien was involved with this one, but he was he ended up leaving partway through post production. And that's the special effects. Yeah, the big special effects guy and his assistant. His name was uh, Gibson ended up finishing the movie, but he, he left initially because, just like I mentioned before, he had clashes with Chotzak and Cooper. He clashed with them again, and this time it was so bad he just up and left, then was beset by tragedy because his wife went a little crazy and uh, murdered their sons and then committed suicide. Oh, that's not good. Yeah, he ended up not being able to finish out the movie, 
and actually felt that his assistant Gibson finishing the movie, when before it was just because he was mad at Shotzak and Cooper, he felt betrayed. And it created a rift between the two of them mm. for many years. Another uh, almost tragedy in this movie is Marion C. Cooper had a heart attack, nearly died. Okay, remind me, that's the director? The co-director on the original movie and the producer on this one, who did not direct this one because he was now in charge of RKO. Oh, okay. Also, to counteract that, I, I found out that he eloped and got married <laughs> during the production of this movie. Wow, he sounds like he had a very tumultuous year. <laughs> you can say that. Now, didn't you tell me that this was released the same year as, uh, like, yes. made and released the same yes. year as King Kong? That's yeah. crazy. They, if, uh, if I remember my, my timeline correctly, Cooper was already talking to RKO about making a sequel, I think, in February. The movie was released in March. Then they started production on the sequel in April. Wow. So you said it was in production for nine months, essentially. How long was the production time for uh, the original? A year, year and a half, I want to say. They had more time. Okay. And there was preliminary stuff related to the film that was going on, I think, as early as, I want to say, 1931, maybe? That would be a very busy year. (laughs) We just released our biggest movie ever. We're going to do another one in a few months. Oh, you identify with Cooper because you're that busy here? I think uh, Jimmy's getting a little big for his britches. Yeah, did you read his first Jimmy's notes for our Kong episode? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Thinks he's hot stuff riffing on me and and all the rest of you. Well, you know what? I will cede to his superior knowledge of kaiju movies. I have have, have no no qualms with admitting uh, inferiority there. (laughs) Well, he's also a war veteran. Keep that in mind. (laughs) Good point. So the start of the movie, we talked about Denim's various lawsuits. and uh, uh, You mean Denim? Yeah, Denim. Denim? Yeah. 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 Jimmy riffed you on that one, too. <laughs> yeah, he, he and his uh, Denim jeans. <laughs> so, yeah, can't really blame him for wanting to get out of New York in the circumstances, although he sneaks out of his, uh, his apartment in probably the worst disguise I think I've ever seen. <laughs> He put a dented pail over his head and, and like overalls over his suit. <laughs> like uh, whoever was wa- like a newspaper reporter, whoever was waiting out there, not very observant. Oh, you mean exposition girl? <laughs> <laughs> no, there was like, there was someone else like outside on the steps. That was, yeah, that was like, hey, have you, you how did you get in there? He's like, <laughs> Just, it wasn't Mrs. Hudson. That, that cracked me up. His <laughs> landlady is Mrs. Hudson. So apparently he lives on Baker Street. Uh, apparently. His, his neighbor is Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> I'm not sure Holmes would like that kind of attention. <laughs> I don't think he would either. <laughs> Especially if it was the Cumberbach version. <laughs> yes, yes. So they, they leave New York. We see this this shot of the boat leaving, and they, they scroll through a bunch of places. Except I only recognize, like, maybe one of the names they mentioned, like Shanghai or something. It but, wasn't even Shanghai. Uh, I can't remember what it was. It was like, it was like Colombo. Not Colombo. Colombo. <laughs> All these locations. And I'm, I was actually going on my phone trying to find where all those things are. And they end up in Dakang. And Dakang. I was really trying to figure out where Dakang was. And I couldn't get a straight answer, even uh, on the all-knowing internet. I wonder if it's if those are they may be actual islands, or maybe they're fake islands, or maybe they're like old names. You know, sometimes you know 
Istanbul is not Constantinople. <laughs> it's been a long time ago in Constantinople. <laughs> Why did Constantinople get the works? Uh, it's nobody's business. Yeah, with the it it might have been because at, the, at that point, because they mentioned that Dekang is a, is a Dutch port. So mm. it's possible that that was you know, much like well, with Hong Kong was still being controlled by the British at that point. It might have been a situation like that where the the colonial powers were still in charge and then maybe the, the names were changed later. I'm not sure, but yeah, that could be. Even Wikipedia wasn't giving me a link to name Dekang in the summary of Son of Kong to something. And I'm like, why are you not well, helpful? Well, see, this this is what you have Jimmy for. Jimmy needs to do the research. Uh, he saves all of that for the, the entertaining info dump and leaves everything else to me. Oh, well, that's considerate, I guess. Well, he doesn't want to do all the work around here. <laughs> he already thinks he does everything. I only edit the dang podcast. Anyway, so they get to the, they manage to, to arrive at the one South Seas Island that also has white people on it. <laughs> Which they make a, they make a comment about that. The, because we are introduced to our not Feyre, yes. <laughs> Helen Mack, who did not go on to become quite as famous from what I could tell. She had a career, a nice career, but she did not reach the same heights as Feyre because as many, we get a bunch of characters coming back for this movie, but we did not get Anne or Jack mm, because both of those married. actors had moved on by that point. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought because the characters were happily married and then well, that's have... that's the in-universe reason for it. <laughs> they didn't want to have anything to do with Carl after at that point. <laughs> yeah, probably not. But we are interested, and this this is something that confuses me. Well, the girl in this, she's a singer, and she is introduced as La Belle Helene. But every source I looked at calls her Hilda, because apparently in the script, her name is Hilda. But her stage name, which is the only name that's spoken in the entire movie, is Helene, or she's called Kid, or something like that. Hot stuff. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and The 30s equivalent thereof. Yeah, and, and then the actress's name is Helen, and I'm just like, this is a couple levels of inception here. I don't know what the heck is going on. So... Since all the sources I have called her Hilda, I just call her Hilda. But so we're introduced to to her as one of our new characters, and her father and her are apparently the only white people. Well, no, because we have Hellstrom. So we got the three white people in this entire port. Yeah. <laughs> Besides the crew of the venture. Right. Right. And there's a comment to that because her father says uh, a white man to talk to or something like yeah. that when in reference to denim. Because I, I'm getting the feeling because you know, that dear old dad, because he's the manager of the show that they're doing, starting to think, oh, yeah, you got a thing for this for this guy? Trying to think of her future somehow, right? Supposedly, maybe. Yeah. I'm not sure. He How seemed a little opposed to it. Yeah. How did they get on this island again? They said that uh, she said that at some point that they had been part of another circus. They were part they of a circus. And then because her father was an alcoholic, they lost their job and then tried to start their own show. And, and she tells Denim later, I used to be a ballerina, but I wasn't very good. Then, you know, we start our own show, but it isn't very good. And yeah. <laughs> she's, she's very down on herself. You know, it's it's interesting you called her the not Fay Ray because she really is in a lot of ways not quite exactly the opposite, but she is strikingly contrasting to Anna's character. She is, and that's the interesting thing about this character is she is not strictly a damsel in distress. She's very proactive 
I mean, it's interesting just from a very base level. She's brunette as opposed to blonde. It seems like that's might have been a purposeful choice there just to distinguish her. But yeah, when she was confronting the the guy that her father was drinking with, basically Nil- Hellstrom. Yeah, Hellstrom, basically accusing him of of being responsible for her father's death, which he was. But she had this maybe like, unintentional. I don't think it was more like manslaughter yeah. than murder. Right, yeah, right. I, I would agree. They were both drunk and yeah, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, she has this real strong like attitude. Like she's really re- ready to th- the throw him to the dogs, and like very much the opposite of like Anna's naive. Oh, help me, Mister Producer! Kind of, <laughs> kind of attitude, Mister Producer. <laughs> Which actually was something I wanted to bring up because you had such a visceral reaction to the scene in the original King Kong when Denim is going to Anne and saying, "Hey, come with me on this trip, and I'll make you the star of my movie." And how did you feel about the scene in here? Well, actually, there's kind of two of them. How did you? What did you think of that? That was interesting. At first, I. Th- I thought it was going to go that way because like, he's like, Oh, she'd be really cool in an act. And it's like, it's like, Oh, this is going to go along familiar lines. But then later on after her father's dead and she's like, I need help. Just take me off this island. He's like, what? No, 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 I, I can't do that. <laughs> like I, I'd, I've taken random girls on trips to, and I think at that point he knows he's going to the island. So he's like, no, 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 no. Waving his hands. Well, not real, literally. But, <laughs> but yeah, again, another interesting contrast. <laughs> Yeah, and then she stows away on the ship. (laughs) She says, okay, you won't let me come? I'm going anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Because at that point, she even says it. I have nowhere else to go. Interesting thing about that, uh, this scene where they reveal that she's on the stowaway, or she was a stowaway, the, when the whole crew comes up and the and um, Carl says something about, oh, I didn't know we were coming from Russia. Here's the workers or something like that. Oh, the, uh, the Council of the Workers. Council of the Workers. That, I was not expecting a Battleship Potemkin reference. <laughs> Battleship Potemkin. Because, You're going to have to explain that a little bit for me. Yeah. So Battleship Potemkin is this 1925 movie that's start, it's about a, a Russian revolution, but it starts when a crew on a ship mutinies because they're being mistreated, they're giving terrible food and harsh working conditions, but it starts with a ship mutiny. So Battleship Kotemkin is a famous Russian movie, famous for uh, its really innovative uh, use of editing. So anyway, like I said, it was, let's see, this was 1933. So this would have been like eight years after Battleship Kotemkin. So I'm sure that was what that was a reference to. Well, I'm glad that you brought that up because I thought it was an acknowledgement of communism, really, at that point, which is why I thought it was interesting that they said Russia and not Soviet Union. I guess Soviet Union wasn't commonly in use maybe until World War II. I don't know. Uh, I'd have to check my history books when that actually started. Well, and it's interesting that you bring that up because we have a mutiny on this. Mm -hmm. It's a mutiny instigated by Hellstrom. Because he gets himself on the ship. He lies. This is one of the great ironies of this of the story in this movie. It's revealed that he's the guy who gave Denim the map of the island. And he recognizes Denim and tries to get him to help him out. And he's like, oh, you're broke too. Uh, I'm shattered, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and then he lies and says, actually, there was a treasure on the island. Oh, there's a treasure. So he does it just to get himself on the ship. And then he tells the crew, they're not lies. He was telling, oh, yeah, you know, the last time we went to this island, 12 people died. (laughs) I'm like, continuity. You remembered how many. (laughs) Yeah. And so then they mutiny. I want to know why they waited until right before they got to the island to do it, but. Maybe to see if he would actually do it, if they were actually going to go there. I guess, maybe. 
So they mutiny. Then after they kick everybody else off the ship, Englehorn, Denim, and Hilda, Helene, whatever you want to call her, <laughs> then he starts saying, well, oh, and Charlie. Charlie just up and rage quits. Because, yeah. like, I don't like those guys anyway. Yeah. As Charlie is wonderful. I want to talk about Charlie a little bit because Charlie's great. So then Hellstrom starts saying, well, now I'm in charge. And he's like, really? We don't, we don't need another captain. We won't have a captain. We and, don't need no stinking captain. Yeah. And then they throw him off. And so um, now suddenly, so suddenly uh, the little uh, clandestine communistic, uh, communist references with these guys saying, we don't need a captain. I mean, uh, there were points where they were, uh, they were complaining about doing work and all that. I was, I was looking at you and saying, like, you know, fight for 15. I mean, you know, and so... I have to say, it was very satisfying, though, to see Hailstrom thrown off. Yeah, but what makes the the whole thing with the communist crew even funnier is the guy who's leading the the mutiny at that point. His name is Red. (laughs) Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) What's funny, I think I noticed in the credits, I think the, the actor's name is Ed. So Ed was playing red. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> I'm sure that wasn't confusing on set. No. <laughs> it's not at all, maybe. I don't know. But since we're on the subject, I do want to bring up Charlie, because I said we didn't talk about Charlie, the Chinese cook, last time, and I wanted to. He actually gets his role expanded in this. He gets to do a lot more. In the other movie, he was a bit player, kind of a background character. In this one, he's going off on the adventure with... All of them. Waving and Cleaver all, all along the way. Oh, yeah. Runs with Cleaver. I mean, <laughs> like in this movie, like I didn't even think about him half the time as a, a Chinese caricature. I just thought, oh, there's the guy with the Cleaver. Yeah. Well, you know what's mildly insulting? I don't know if you saw this, but when they were doing the opening credits, uh-huh. it doesn't give him a name. It says Victor Wong. That's the actor. Victor Wong as Chinese cook. <laughs> that is I'm terrible. Like, he, I, when I saw like he has a name. He has a name, dang it. <laughs> That's something, though, I would like to ask someone who, with a better knowledge of this time period of film history than me, because it was interesting that the opening credit sequence had, like, showed pictures of them from the movie. I feel like I've seen that, like, at the end of movies, but I'm not sure if I'd seen the one in the opening credits before. I mean, it almost looked like something you'd see in, like, a trailer from the Arrow, so I was really curious how common that was. I'm not entirely sure myself. So. It almost felt like... A TV opening. <laughs> kind of did, yeah. Uh, yeah, that'd be a, a good question for uh, someone who's a harder core film buff than me. Jimmy's going to look into it. Oh, thank you, Jimmy. But potential mild racism aside, Charlie in this is wonderful. Just like you said, some people say he's an ethnic stereotype, but when I see Charlie, I just see Charlie. He speaks broken English, so maybe that's supposed to be a stereotype, but I could also look at that as just being, well, maybe he's some poor immigrant, found his way to New York City, needed a job, became a cook on the ship, doesn't know the best English. But I think the fact that his English isn't perfect is part of the charm. And this Victor Wong guy is funny. And that's an interesting thing. When I first saw the name Victor, you think, oh, okay, this is probably another white guy playing an ethnic guy. But then last, his last name is Wong. So I was like, wait a minute, is he actually, is he like actually an Asian guy? Which, uh, yeah, kudos for them because apparently they, they, they hired an actual Asian to play an Asian and they hired uh, uh, the same African-American? I'm Noble guessing? Johnson. Noble Johnson. Okay. so and for, he, the, for the chief. The of the natives. Dial native. And actually, and this is interesting, the if you look at the credits for the original King Kong, his name gets listed. That was unheard of at the time that a black man, let alone any ethnic actor, would actually have their name put right there on the credits. 
I didn't see him for the credits of this one, although I don't remember if they did. They do a list of like extras, or was it just the main players? I would have to double check that. But no, like I said, he's wonderful. He's funny. He's witty. I think my favorite line from him, which you, you, I had to explain it to you a little bit. Because like, what did he say? Because that was one of those instances where the English, the accent and the English is a little hard. Because it's when they, the other characters have been put into the lifeboat and Charlie's there. Then I was like, what are you doing here? And he said, he, oh, I'm here. And he, that he was there because he didn't like the rest of them. And then when they get shoved off in the lifeboat, he kind of shakes his fist at them and says, you die soon, no cook. <laughs> I'm sure they can figure out how to eat, but <laughs> it'll all be raw and things like that. You know, okay. these are all gruff sailors. They don't know how to cook anything. My favorite part with Charlie though, was the part uh, where uh, Carl basically quoted Hellstrom's line back to him. It's like, Oh yeah. What, what, what was it? Smart man. Like you don't need a gun. Yeah. And then the guy, rather than laugh, he just does one single ha. <laughs> And then, like, goes back to, like, looking stoic. <laughs> I know. It's great. He's, he's just wonderful. He's, you know, he's this great sidekick, I guess you could say. He's kind of the comic relief, I guess. Could he be the comic relief character in this? I don't know. I kind of feel like Kong is the comic relief. Oh, Kiko. Kiko, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not Kong. Kong is kind of dead. Kong, Kong Jr. Yeah, Kong Jr. I mean, he's got... Several names that, you know, we could go by, which actually is something I really love uh, going back to the opening here real quick. I love how we, you have the credits and they have the title card for the actual movie. And then the first shot after the credits are over is this close up of a poster for Denim's King Kong Broadway show. And it's framed in just a way that it almost seems like a second title card. <laughs> so it, it's it's wonderful. Speaking of Kiko, who is the son of Kong, yes, but is not actually named. That name doesn't actually appear in this movie. No, which is seems to be a thing because I, I mentioned Hilda already. But yeah, Kiko doesn't get a name in this. It's a portmanteau of King Kong, Kiko. Okay, I don't know why he doesn't get a name, but you know he is the titular character. In this, and this is near as I can tell, is the first time that this son of motif was used as a sequel. You'll you'll see the it gets replicated later. The in several different franchises, there, there's a son of Frankenstein. Hmm. There was even a son of Dracula. There was also a do- uh, there was also a Dracula's daughter. Okay, there was in the fifties. No joke, you had son of Blob, <laughs> which I have not seen. I've seen the original Blob, but I haven't seen son of Blob. Uh, in the 60s, you eventually kind of comes full circle a little bit, and you had Son of Godzilla. Have they ever done a Son of the Thing? <laughs> that would be interesting, to say the least. <laughs> but uh, since we're talking about characters, I, I do want to... We've already hinted at it a little bit. You are talking about the consequences of it, but Denim. Hmm. Denim is a very different character in this. It's amazing how much a man can change in a month. You go, you go from this very uh, self-assured, bombastic kind of arrogant movie director into this broken man. I mean, he still has the charisma for sure. He still has the charisma, but he is a broken man. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. He's not like one of these characters that would have crawled into a bottle. He's certainly been humbled, but when the captain offers him a chance to go, I was like, yeah, let's do it. That's he, he kind of perks up. He still has that adventure, that adventure streak Mm -hmm. in him. But it's almost like the showman in him has been burned out. And yet it keeps coming out at a couple of points. There was like uh, the scene when we're seeing La Belle Helene doing her show. 
And that actually, that seems pretty funny too, because, well, first off, he had the, the performing monkeys, which was just, we were making so many jokes <laughs> with that one, you know, you know, you know Abu before Aladdin and, and, uh, Hey, Hey, we're the monkeys. And, <laughs> and it went on for a while. That's, that's, I think that's why we started making jokes about it. Because yeah. Like, yeah. The movie took a break for the, like the full minute or two. Yeah. Of, it of became monkeys. this kind of weird Almost musical for about <laughs> five minutes. Dissonant monkey playing music. Yeah, which is just, what the heck? But anyway, but it's, you know, foreshadowing. <laughs> Monkeys. They're Symbolism. Important. It's like, yeah, symbolism. <laughs> you know? But Hilda, Helene, she comes on and does her thing. And the showman, the movie director in Denim just kicks in. He can't stop it. Yeah. You know? And he's like, oh, she can't sing that good. But she's got personality. You know, she could put her in a musical comedy and stuff like that. You know, but at the same time, he's not seriously thinking about doing no. it. He's just acknowledging and enjoying kind of being with her. And yeah, well, it's it's kind of like the phrase I heard from my dad and uh, one of my professors who was ex-military back in uh, back in our during our college days, which was you can take the soldier out of the military, but you can't take the military out of the soldier. Mm. You know, the same thing I think here with denim. You know, you can take denim out of showbiz, but you can't. Take the showbiz out of denim. <laughs> Makes sense. But, you know, since we're talking about denim and dealing with the consequences of his actions, I found it a little bit funny. Uh, there, there's some great puns in this movie, I want to say. Uh, the, the wonderful wit in this. This is a funnier script than the, than the last one. Mm. One of my favorites being when Hellstrom swims over. <laughs> this got a big laugh out of you, too. Hellstrom swims over to the lifeboat, and denim says, oh, it's nice to see you under the circumstances. And he pushes him <laughs> under the water. Dunks him under. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But then later they get on the island and Denim says that you know, more or less, well, we can go ask the, the natives for help. And oh, what did he say? It was something about throwing them something and then they throw us and then a spear hits the boat. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the, the chief tells him off pretty much. And so it's just like, oh, so everyone in New York is suing Denim and the, the, the natives want to kill him. So <laughs> he has no place to go at no. this point. So I guess, so do they basically roll around to the forbidden, the animal side of the island? Is that where they're going? Like on the other side of the wall? Well, I guess the wall, is the wall even there anymore? We don't really know. Uh, I don't know budget cuts, but. Because <laughs> <laughs> we, we never get to the wall, but we did see Kong destroy a lot of it before. Um, yes. But basically, I guess we're, we're assuming they're rowing to the other side of the island where the natives aren't and where the monsters are. Yes, where the monsters are, which I guess that's because uh, we don't see as much of the island in this. Again, budget cuts. And. <laughs> But so I'm kind of wondering, like those poor natives now, those, you know, the dinosaurs are really running amok around there oh, probably that's now. True. And, yeah, I didn't think you know, that. So the wall helped keep them out too, not just the big, uh, the big gorilla. Mm. So, uh, well, the it, wall was kind of, wasn't it kind of built into the side of a mountain or was it just the wall that was, oh uh, no, I guess it was just the wall, wasn't it? It was a giant wall. It was a giant wall. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wonder what what life has been like with uh, been like for the natives. But again, just like I said in the last one, these movies aren't realistic; they're yeah. mythic. Although I don't know if I would classify this one as mythic, but we'll get to that a little bit later. I think. Well, and the natives didn't have long to worry about that anyway. Apparently, yeah, so. yeah, only a few months. <laughs> but so we get our cameo from Noble Johnson, and then we move on from there, and then. You finally, I mean, it was about 47 minutes in, I clocked it, 47 minutes into the 69-minute movie, and you finally got a dinosaur, and you perked up right there. <laughs> that was great. You're like, yes, dinosaur! <laughs> Which is funny, because I don't normally care about, that was such a highlight of the last movie, and and 
we talked in the in the last in, uh, episode too about just how much when they got in that part of the island, just how crazy things. And it, it took a while. Like they they got in, they got to the other side of the island. It's like there's no monsters attacking them. <laughs> Why aren't there monsters attacking them? <laughs> the, the first creature they see is uh, son Kiko. of Kong, yeah, Kiko. Kiko. So they get right to the action there. Uh, and already they established very quickly. He's not his dad. He's a lot friendlier. He's kind of buffoonish. Actually, more than kind of. <laughs> He's really buffoonish. And it, this turns into, I guess you could say, kind of a, you know, the mouse and the lion. That mm. sort of a thing with with the thorn in the paw. Androcles, yeah. Yeah, where Hilda and Denim get a rescue Kiko out of quicksand. And then it's like he just suddenly imprints on them. You know, it's like, oh, you're my new mom and dad. Because... I don't know where my dad went. My dad's been gone for a while, and we don't even know what happened to Mrs. Kong. Mm-hmm. You know, you and I were having some fun with that, trying to figure out, like, where's Mrs. Kong? My, I think our... <laughs> our our best theory was that uh, one of the, the T-Rex had killed her. Yeah, so the T-Rex had killed her, so Kong is a widower, and that's why he keeps getting all the brides. You know, he's <laughs> looking for... He's just trying to find a new mom for Kiko. <laughs> 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 now, has Kiko ever been featured in any spinoff iterations of King Kong? Yes and no. <laughs> there have there have been this there is was kind of one, derailing your yeah, kind of thought here. Uh, bit, there but. is one other movie that features a son of Kong, but it's not Kiko. It's not a a smaller albino gorilla. Okay, it was just a regular looking gorilla. It, it's from King Kong Lives, which is. The worst King Kong movie, I think, but <laughs> it is the uh, Godzilla versus Megalon of the King Kong franchise. <laughs> now, it's interesting you called him uh, albino because it's black and white, so it's hard to tell exactly what shade. I was picturing him having more of a gray hair, but do you think most people... Cons- uh, he's considered to be albino. The, really? All my research white? is, yeah, he's white supposed hair. to be, he's white. Okay. He is white, so he's an albino. Interesting. But and anyway, so he gets rescued, then he, he imprints on denim and... Hilda and again he, another another way of contrasting between the two different movies, I guess. Yeah, because he, he he's not trying to kidnap Hilda or anything. He's mm-hmm. you know he's like, oh, I love you. <laughs> oh, you help me. And then then it's like for about ten minutes, it, it turns into this thing where it's like, oh, we have to keep the monster secret. You know, don't tell Hellstrom. You know, <laughs> yeah. You know, so the, he you know. so it can be a surprise. <laughs> it can be a surprise. And then Kiko turns out to be. I know some people don't like Kiko, and you know they. You know, he doesn't have the ferocity and that you know that masculine energy of of his father. But I find him really endearing. I mean, I could see how some people wouldn't like. I, I wish I had kept track of how many times he scratches his head. <laughs> it could be a drinking game. <laughs> yeah. He kind of has this like like quality a lot of it, but. You played that drinking game once? This, uh, this explains a lot. Yeah. Was that what you were doing last night? Oh, don't answer that question. <laughs> but, I mean, at the same time, he does do a good job of fighting off a, a bunch of monsters. Well, two of them. Yeah. Two of them. I mean, the giant bear was... Uh, the cave bear. The cave bear. That was probably <laughs> I was the best. like, there's a, there's a bear. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, Lord of the Rings. They have a cave troll. <laughs> they have a cave bear. <laughs> I was like, there's a bear on the island with dinosaurs and a giant gorilla. And they're having a vertifiable wrestling match. Yeah, it was seriously a wrestling match. I mean, Willis O'Brien was a wrestler and a boxer. But you can, uh, you know, with the T-Rex fight, his boxing background certainly came through. And there's some grappling and stuff in that fight. But this one was straight up. With you the, know, it's like all we need is, you know, the WWE announcers to come in and start talking about, it's a slobber knocker. I mean, 
Kiko got some punches thrown in. Yeah, yeah. after he put the bear in a headlock. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of fun. Yeah, we were having fun with that. It was it was a fun fight, and it was funny, too, you know, because he would, especially with the, the lizard, the Nothosaurus or... In the cave. Or, yeah, or dragon or something like that, which it's not... I, I don't think it's a real uh, a, a real dinosaur. It's, it was made up. That one was actually even funnier because the dragon thing kept getting back up and he would punch it in the face again. <laughs> it was like, straight on. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. They were certainly... They are very entertaining. Again, the stop motion is not as... Like I said, it's a bit more cartoony. It's also a little more herky-jerky. Yeah, hugely entertaining to watch. Yeah. But I, it, and, and it works for the context of this kind of movie. It, it doesn't have the kind of immediacy, the feeling of danger that the first King Kong Yeah, did. but it's not supposed to. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's even the, the ending of the fight with the cave bear before the cave bear gets back up. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and Kiko is just looking, he's like, oh. Look, 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 he's motion it's like a cat that just caught a bird and leaves it on your doorstep. You know, I, I want there to be, I want to, someone to make uh, look some. Look what I killed for you. I, I want someone to make some reaction gifts of Kiko. <laughs> like, I think there was like one moment where he like half looked at the camera and shrugged. I know. That I'm was, like, what is the, did, did, I, I looked at she's like, did Kiko just break the fourth wall? Because like, you, I remember, I think you brought this up on your podcast in one episode where you said uh, that there was, because there was a shot in Lord of the Rings where Legolas, <laughs> looks at the camera yeah uh, and it's just supposed to be a reaction shot but because he's looking right at the camera it's like he's addressing the audience and normally actors are told not to look directly at the camera because it, it would shatter the illusion and it looks like that you're addressing the audience so you literally had that happening here kiko is looking at the camera and shrugging i'm like is it, he self-aware yeah it'd just make you a great reaction gif <laughs> i'll see what i can do or maybe i'll give that assignment to jimmy one cool special effects thing with Kiko, though, the shot where they're bandaging up the hand <laughs> or finger, I should say. It's a nice little it's a nice effect. Obviously, that's like the one time or one of the few times in the movie that they did like a life size version. of. Yeah, they use the like in the other movie where they had the, the life size props. But it was a it was a great uh, when they did the wide the wide angle version of that. It, it was a really nice effect. Um, it's, it's just unfortunate that the finger that was wounded was the middle finger. And he was just extending that one and curling up all the other hands. And I'm just like, dude, you're flipping off your new mom and dad. Interesting thing. I I read that there are some who believe that was intentionally done by Willis O'Brien as a way to get back at the producers. I'm like flipping the bird was a thing in the thirties. Do I need to do a, do I need to do research on this? (laughs) 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 The history of the middle finger. (laughs) If any of you listeners know, please write in and tell me. <laughs> but uh, and then before that, I mentioned this was just kind of funny because Denim is talking with Hilda. And he's like, oh, man, he's hurt. What do we do? And she doesn't even bat an eye. She just goes down and starts tearing off the bottom of her skirt to uh, make a little bandage for him. And I looked and I was like, so in the first movie, his dad undresses a woman. In this one, the woman undresses for him. So... <laughs> I feel like that wouldn't have even been a thing, but they played like a musical like note under like to underscore that she was tearing yeah. part of her. Clothes. By the way, same composer as the first movie. Okay, Max Steiner. I could tell that it was composed. It was another soundtrack made specifically for this. They didn't really need to underscore that. It was just there. Was, <laughs> you didn't even see anything. It was like the under part of her skirt. So it was like, yeah, really, yeah. <laughs> The, and then, you know, later on with Kiko, you had this moment where he's like a little kid where Denim and Hilda are having a nice little moment by a campfire. 
And he just kind of walks and he's like, ooh. He peeks around the corner. Ooh, like, peeks around the corner. It's like a little kid coming, you know, uh, stumbling upon mom and dad having a moment, you know. <laughs> he's like, ooh, ooh, what's going on? And then, and then later on for whatever, just because for plot reasons, before the dragon, not the Saurus thing shows up when they're at the temple, you know, Legends of the Hidden Temple here. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're finding out that the treasure is real. Yeah. When... You know, the guy had made it up. How convenient. <laughs> so, you know, he starts playing around with the rifle and accidentally breaks it. Yeah, what was that scene about? Uh, it was just so that they didn't have the gun to shoot the the lizard so that they could, the Kiko could actually have a reason to fight it. Uh, I'm okay. guessing. Instead of just saying, well, it's immune to bullets like most of the aliens in Doctor Who. But <laughs> yeah. that's an actual joke in Doctor Who, by the way. <laughs> the, a, I wish we could fight an alien menace that wasn't immune to bullets. <laughs> but anyway, and I was looking, he's like playing around with the thing. He was like sticking it in his mouth and looking down the barrel. And I'm just like, oh, you'll put your eye out, kid. <laughs> Another way that Hilda will say was the not Anna. Don't remember if she actually screamed in this entire movie, except for the one time. Except that- for when the bear showed up, but then. Oh no! I think she screamed a little bit when the at the end. Oh, okay. During the earthquake, during the culmination of every natural disaster ever. But (laughs) (laughs) we'll get to that. And but when the cave bear shows up, there's a scream. Here's the funny thing: that's not her screaming. That's not Hella Mac. They dubbed in Fay Ray. Because they had a surplus of Fay Ray screams, apparently. <laughs> apparently. So she kind of appears in this movie. <laughs> I just love that. It's just like, you can't scream as well as Fay Ray. Sorry. <laughs> no one can scream as well as Fay Ray. <laughs> no. <laughs> she was the original scream queen. I mean, we've been over this. But then, the, I will admit, the ending of this movie confounds me a little bit. Because, okay, I get it. You want to put, you want to have a set piece for a big action sequence at the end. Natural disaster. Okay, got it. It is literally every natural disaster ever. We get an earthquake, hurricane, a hurricane, and supposedly some of the some of the articles I read claimed that the volcano had erupted as well. Like there's a volcano. (laughs) So it's like all of these things happening at once. I mean, admittedly, I was getting, you know, recently, you know, being on Ogasawara here, we had to deal with a typhoon that just came through. A typhoon Hajibus, I think is what it's called. You know, we had to hunker down a little bit for that. The monsters were not having a good time. Mm. <laughs> you know, and they were got a little bit of, a little rowdy when that was when that was happening. I, I don't envy that part of your job. Uh, yeah, well, thankfully it's not my job. That's what the scientists and all of that that they have to deal with that. Uh, I, you okay. know, I just take care of the film vault. Okay. But anyway, <laughs> So you've got all this happening and it it destroys the island, but it's like everything. How, like how, what, how unlucky do you have to be to have the world's fastest hurricane and an earthquake and apparently a volcanic eruption well, you know, all at the same time? I had a theory about that and I wonder if anyone has ever speculated about this before, but do you think it's a coincidence that that all happened after they took the diamond necklace thing out of that cave? So you're saying that this is kind of an Indiana Jones thing? Yeah, it's kind of... Except on a grandiose <laughs> overkill. Yeah. It, <laughs> it's it's kind of like when, you know, you, the, the movies where you... Uh, it, like sorry, you kill the bad guy, then all the stuff just kind of collapses all of a sudden. You take the necklace out of the, the temple and it, everything just collapses. The whole, In this case, the entire island. I like this headcanon. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't I know. I can go with this. It's an interesting idea. And I don't know. We don't know anything about where this necklace came from. It's just there. Yeah. I just something I thought of. It's like the only, it was the only uh, impetus I could see for what we've seen on screen. Well, you know, there is someone here on the island who was there when it happened. I mean, Kiko is still around. Just because the monsters die in these movies doesn't mean they, they actually die. That's why they're all here on the island. He's all grown up now. I'll have to ask him. Oh, that's well, a good idea. First, I'd have to see if the, uh, the the little bit of tech we got from Monarch that's supposed to help you communicate with the monsters is supposed to, you I know, even works. Do uh, The Orca. Yeah, I still, we're still trying to work the bugs out of that thing. Do uh, Kiko and his dad get along? Last I checked, I think they did. I'm just curious. Yeah, but anyway, so yeah, all of those disasters happen all at once. And what baffles me is that it's almost like the filmmakers were saying, okay, fine, we made you a sequel, but we're not making any more. Yeah. So we're, we're not, we're going to make sure we can't make any more sequels. Not only are we going to kill Son of Kong. We're sinking the island. We're sinking the island. That's it. Yeah. So you can't even go back, which is why it confounds me because I have the John LeMay just published a book in the last year about lost Kong films. Apparently, there were a bunch of them that Marion C. Cooper tried to make for years, including something like, uh, I forget what it was called, but it would have been a midquel that okay. would have taken place during the journey, after they've captured Kong, during the journey from the island back to New York City. It would have involved them making a stop in Africa, and Kong gets loose, and they have to recapture him, and just uh, all of these things. So I'm like, then why did they, why did he want to keep making sequels when he blew up the island? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> Maybe it was just a short-sighted, oh, let's make this look exciting and cool at the end. It'd be a know? good way to do it. I mean, if you if you can't if you're not gonna bring Kong to the United States, you need to have some sort of scene of destruction, I guess. So. Yeah. You gotta do something. Yeah. So I feel sorry it. for the natives. Yeah, 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 poor guys. They didn't yeah. do anything. Yeah, they didn't well. As far as we know, it was. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess it did send a lot of yeah. brides over to King Kong. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, but and then we have a scene that actually does kind of mirror the end of the original one, except they're standing on top of a peak, but it's a sinking peak. It's not a building; it's a mountain. Hmm. So the actual Skull Mountain and Kiko, like his father, has a tragic death, but it's not tragic in the sense of Kong is this victim, if you want to look at it that way, who's taken out of his natural environment, taken to this foreign place, he's misunderstood, and he, and he dies, killed by the humans and all of that, even though if you had left him alone, nothing probably would have happened. In this case, he's he dies a hero yeah. because he helps Denim, the guy who, for this whole movie, has been conscience-stricken about what he did to Kong, and it was helping Kiko, which I love how he just automatically knows that Kiko is son Kong's Kong. son. Yeah. Who else could he be? Yeah. You know, so he's doing all this stuff because he wants to make it up to the family, the Kong family. So Kiko holds him up as long as he can as he is sinking into the water so that the, the rest of our protagonists can find him you know, and get him back into the lifeboat. Yeah, that was that was a that was a neat scene. Very yeah, yeah. In a scene that I think had to have been in James Cameron's mind when he did Terminator Two. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. I was half expecting to see that hand as it was sinking in the water. Do a thumbs up. Yeah, <laughs> might have been a little much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So overall, I'd say Son of Kong is certainly not the the classic that King Kong is, but it's still very watchable. Yeah. In fact, I was reading a book called King Kong, The History of a Movie Icon by uh, Ray Morton as part of my research for this. And he agrees that, you know, this is nowhere near the caliber of the original movie. But he described it in a very interesting way, which was that if the original movie is a grand myth, this is a pleasant bedtime story. <laughs> okay. I can see and that. 
I think if you look at the movie that way, I think it lends it a little bit more legitimacy, which is more than I can say for... There was another author the, who wrote an essay accusing this and the, the Japanese Kong films of, as he put it, infantilizing mm. King Kong. And he also argued in this movie that denim was diminished because you know the bravado was gone and, and Kiko doesn't have his father's bravado and, well, and all that. It. And he laid it at the feet of Ruth Rose. Mm. He kind of came across as a little bit of a misogynist, to be honest, when I was reading this essay. Yeah. I could I could see that. I mean, considering that we're dealing with the consequences of the last movie, yeah, Denim should be diminished. He should be humbled, humiliated a little bit from all that. It's interesting contrast now I think about it because, like we've been saying, we see those consequences, and yet at the same time, this is kind of a lighter movie, which is an interesting juxtaposition now I think about it. But I guess that just means it gives the audience early on i would say even the idea that we we are taking this seriously enough that this is not going to be a waste of your time but at the same time we're going to have fun with this yeah i think the fact that kiko isn't like his dad works in the fact that it helps differentiate him mm. and create a different story he's also, a different character yeah he's a different character also he's an adolescent <laughs> is he is he he could just be a kid yeah yeah i mean not even adolescent he could just be a kid mm-hmm. i mean what are you expecting him to act like? <laughs> Just saying. Also, you're telling me that the the, the, the Kiko is some as Kong infantilized. Yeah, tell that to the cave bear and the and the dragon oh, that's that true. he beat the tar out of. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah, yeah. All right. With that, I think it's time to move on to our Toku topic. I'm expecting this discussion to be less of a bombarding you listeners with facts and more of a you getting to hear over here, Tim and I have a philosophical discussion because that's really what this is about. But we'll be discussing the attitude that 1930s films and filmmakers had when it came to handling the depression. Now, we talked about in the king kong episode about how there are some subtle references to the depression in that movie but for the most part it's an escapist adventure fantasy this one really isn't any references to the depression at all even when they're talking about all the lawsuits and everything i think that's why i think this is actually kind of an appropriate thing to talk about and also because this is a lighter movie and it's it's almost a comedy at points because this sort of fare was apparently from the reading I was doing was very common at the time as the, a means of helping the audience to forget about what was going on, which is a common function of escapism. Yeah, it fits in with a lot of commentators have talked about Great Depression movies being escaped from kind of the seriousness of things going on. And yeah, you see that. And then at the same time, you do also get, a even though the Depression itself is not referenced, you do get that storyline of people in a bad financial situation looking for something better. Even that means having to leave their mainland, their homeland, or travel to parts unknown or stow away on the ship. Yeah. <laughs> One way or another, they, they're going to try to find a better life. And, which is something that you know is mentioned in the you know some of the reading that I w- that I was doing. The other thing that was interesting was that despite and this was something we talked about the last time, you know, King Kong was a giant hit at what was probably one of the lowest points in the Depression. Movies themselves actually remained very popular throughout this entire decade, even though a lo- people had options for 
cheaper entertainment that was free. You know, this is the this was the golden age of radio. You know, and you had the serialized dramas and news radio and and all of that sort of stuff. And this was when comic books became a thing, and you know, those were relatively cheap. You know, you could get a comic book for you know five ten cents. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a fair amount of competition. I mean. I guess the some of the differences is like well one not necessarily everyone had a radio but then I I'm, I've heard of stories of neighborhoods getting together to listen to their favorite programs during that that period but yeah movies have their own kind of unique form of escapism you go into a dark room you, you may be with a lot of people but at the same time it's kind of I mean sometimes it is a shared experience but all, all other times it's even though there's other people there you're still kind of lost in the world of what's on the screen. I read one commentator who said that this was some people call this the nickel and dime era, you know, of pop culture, American pop culture, which actually some well there was one commentator I read that said that this the 1930s was classified by a lot of people as the birth of American pop culture because this was the point where not only were people seeking that sort of stuff, that escapist entertainment, but it was also the point where the United States really got to assert its own kind of pop culture, uh, separate from the previous influences, which I thought was interesting. Well, and I remember I did a senior paper in high school on radio and how radio was in many ways one of the first true mass mediums in the sense that America is this huge country, you know, widespread, different communities have different things, except now that you have radio, everyone has these shared experiences and experiencing them at the same time because it's broadcast live. And that's something that, I mean, obviously the movies, the, the talking films and books and magazines, those things also shared culture across state boundaries and, and uh, things like that. But that live experience of radio particularly was very, very immediate. Mm-hmm. But also being able to have the shared experiences of, wow, did you see this movie about this giant gorilla? Like, yeah. That, that, like that's an experience you could... I mean, that's why movies are still, you know, such a, you know, everyone knows, like, have you seen Avengers yet? Yeah. (laughs) There are very few uh, films that come out now that command that sort of attention. Attention. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A very few where you can have that sort of shared experience in this age of streaming wherever and on demand entertainment. Oh, yeah. We have so many more splintered interests now with the internet and all kinds of you know, different subcultures. But at the time, it was really important. And I think, again, consider this is 1930s. There there were still people alive who remembered the Civil War. Yeah. So having that, again, a new way to share community was really invaluable, especially, I think, yeah, during the Depression era. Yeah, which actually makes me think of something. There's a line, actually, in this movie from Denim that seems like it could have been said now, which is, this is New York. That's long, you know, a month is long enough for them to forget about the World War. You know, so they're like, yeah, but giant gorilla. (laughs) They're not forgetting that. Yeah. And the thing that's about this is that people were looking for escapism because they had a lot more leisure time on their hands because they were unemployed, you know, with the unemployment skyrocketing at this point. And that's why a lot of the entertainment that they were looking for was either cheap or it was free because they had all this leisure time, but they weren't making money. So they had to occupy themselves somehow. One of those articles you linked to me pointed out that at this point in history, leisure time was in some ways still kind of a novelty. Like it was less about like, you know, when we had more technologies that were automating certain things, you know, not necessarily everyone was chopping wood for their fireplace and uh, watch. Well, I'm not sure how laundry was being done back then. It wasn't full. Everything wasn't fully automated, but obviously 
there was enough technology, you know, gas lighting, there was electricity at that point that freed up time to do things like that. Yeah, people were able to spend far less time figuring out how they were going to survive since they had the luxury of not having to worry about, am I going to die tomorrow? <laughs> or am I going to die today? What can I do to avoid dying today? They could spend it doing other things. It's a concept that I think is lost on us and anyone who's you know, really lived the last 50, 60 years. That's not something that we've had, for most of us anyway, is something that we've even had to think about. I think we get reminded a little bit of what it might be like when we, whenever there's a blackout. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I can't do internet or get on to watch TV or uh, what do I do with myself? What is this book thing? (laughs) (laughs) It's the internet, but on paper. (laughs) I mean, that's just a a tiny taste of what it would be like to not have all the like, I mean, beyond just electricity, there's a lot of structure for like how we get our food delivered to us and how our houses are built now to stay warm and yeah, all the, the clothes, you know, clothes are, made for us a lot faster than people who used to only be able to have like maybe one set. Yeah. Two if you're really well off. (laughs) Yeah, something like that. Which is why I find it fascinating how films at this time, and I will admit I am not as familiar with films from this era as I am others. You know, the golden age of Hollywood. I've seen my fair share, but I haven't seen as many as other people. I will freely admit that. But what I find fascinating with the ones that I have seen and the research that I've done is that there seem to be two very polar opposite attitudes that these films and these filmmakers took. In this period? Yeah, in this period when it came to dealing with the Depression, which was either it's complete escapism, which for the most part was what the original King Kong was, certainly what this is, and the the universal horror movies were the same way. In fact, you know, my brother paid me a visit here on the island and has been using the screening room in the off hours to watch some of the universal horror movies. And I am struck by the fact that most of these are either period pieces or they are set in present day, but there's no talk whatsoever of the Depression, at least from the, the scenes that I've been seeing. Because it's been a little while since I've seen a lot of them. And that very much reflects one common attitude. In fact, a couple of the commentators I looked at pretty much said, that's what all the movies were like. Comedies were popular. This was when the Marx Brothers broke onto the scene. And they were getting away with joking about the sorts of things that, you know, at the time would be considered very countercultural, you know, making fun of monogamy and authority and all of these things. You know, I think I heard uh, one commentator went so far as to call them the original anarchists and things (laughs) like that. But there was another commentator who said there were also filmmakers who wanted to tackle the the issue head on because he argued that that's why a lot of the gangster movies of this time, they were dealing with things like that. People were getting involved in organized crime in these movies because they needed money. They were poor and they needed something to do. You know, this is when you had the rise of Bogart and Cagney and all of these, you know, very famous actors, you know, making these gangster movies and often very rough films. The gangster, in a way, kind of got romanticized, near as I can tell, in this era, mm-hmm. you know, which then paved the way for you know such famous films as The Godfather and, and, and all of that. But then, you know, that's down the road. But I was also thinking of, and this wasn't brought up in any of the commentaries, but the have you ever seen Modern Times with Charlie Chaplin? 
Yes, although not as many. I used to. There's a. I had a couple of Charlie Chaplin movies I used to watch regularly, and I've seen Modern Times, but it's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while for me as well. But when I was reading all of this, I couldn't help but think about that because this was a film that it, I mean, it was a comedy. I mean, it's Charlie Chaplin, but it was a film that was very much mired in the time it was made. It did not shy away from talking about the perils that the audience would have been facing, and it. But it, it's funny. Mm-hmm. It is very funny. It's Charlie Chaplin being Charlie Chaplin. Lots of physical comedy. In this movie, he's playing the tramp. It's mostly silent. There's a scene that's noteworthy because you actually hear him sing, and it was a big deal because this is the first time you actually hear Charlie Chaplin. But it's mm-hmm. the only sound scene in the entire movie. But the premise of it is the tramp is trying to get a job, and shenanigans ensue. I think one know. of the most famous scenes from that movie is like him being like, caught up in some of the machinery. Yeah. And it's kind of this symbolic thing of man being caught in the cogs of the machine. Kind yeah. Of and then not being able to keep a job, but desperately needing one because it's the depression. Yeah. Yeah. I find it fascinating that you have these two commentators that are saying very different things in it. So for me, I don't think it's a one or the other. I think it's a both and. Yeah. It was kind of funny, actually, how I, I read I skimmed through those articles you sent. And yeah, one is very much like, yeah, it was all about escapism with a few outliers showing like kind of crime drama. And then the other one was like, ah, no, it was, it was about a expression of frustration and, and rage, even in the comedies. That's what the Marx brothers were all about. And I tend to agree with you. I think probably there's filmmakers sharing both voices. In fact, I think during this, the Hollywood studio system era, the different studios were really known for doing a certain kind of movie. I mean, obviously you've talked about the universal horror movies. They were known for doing those kind of horror and fantasy kind of things. MGM was known for doing big outlandish productions, eventually like things like the wizard of Oz and, Gone Which is very much an escapist fantasy. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, yeah. and it's out in it's out in Kansas. It's not in the major cities. It's clearly present day. Yeah. yeah. They At least lo- I think it's supposed to be present day. I'm pretty sure it's present day. They I lo- could be wrong on that. But if it's present day, there's no... They don't even talk about the Dust Bowl. Well, wait, the, wait, which one? Wizard of Oz. Oh, Wizard of Oz. Yeah. There's not even talk about the Dust Bowl. Yeah, that's a that. good question, even though it's in Kansas. Yeah, I'm not sure, actually, that's supposed to be present day or not for that time period. It's hard to say. Okay, you find that out in your for your notes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, MGM was known for the spectacle. Warner Brothers was the studio that the, the article mentioned their gangster movies. They were definitely the of all the studios during this period, they would be the ones that were most keen to do the like the hard hitting pieces, the film noirs, the they they were known as kind of the dark studio in some ways. The Maltese Falcon or I think that one article referenced the movie called I Was a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. Yeah. Chain Gang, which is based on a real life person. That's a fascinating movie. There was actually controversy about that particular movie because the person that they made it about was still actually a fugitive. And they were like, are you kidding? Yeah, and the people the people that the movie was critiquing, I think, I want to say Alabama, but I'm not sure which. It was one of the southern states, I believe. They were not happy about the movie. They were like, that's not accurate. And it probably was about yeah. how the what's what the prison conditions were like at the time. It is one of these like hard-hitting kind of like, no, this is what people are doing in, in our prison conditions and this is not good, kind of the showing off the darkness that expose it kind of movie. And uh, Warner Brothers is probably the, I mean, I, th- I think they did a, a couple of escapist things too, but that, that they were the studio that they made that their uh, studio identity. In and their modus operandi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think there are definitely filmmakers that were leaning to their strengths for, and they knew what their strengths were and what they what kind of art they wanted to make. 
So we have these two attitudes, very polar opposite attitudes. And I think there's merit to both of them. On one hand, being able to go to the theater with a bunch of other people and for 90 minutes, two hours, actually more like four hours, I found that out. Yeah, yeah this was, this, was, this, should, this should tell you something. I mentioned in the last movie, you know, that tickets at this time cost 10, 15 cents. Again, the nickel and dime era, 10, 15 cents, which is between about, I think I said six and $14, about the going price for a movie ticket. Now, here's the thing. You didn't just get one movie. You got four hours of entertainment out of that 10 cents. You got a movie, sometimes a second movie, a short, a newsreel, maybe a serial. Often a cartoon. Cartoon. You got four (laughs) hours of entertainment out of it. You got a huge bang for your buck at that point. I think there's merit to both of these approaches, but being able to forget about it. Go to a movie theater and go to Kong's Island. There are dinosaurs there. (laughs) There's Faye Ray screaming her head off. Then we'll take him to New York and he'll trash New York. This could never happen, but it's fun. So there, there's merit to that. So you, you can't forget about it. Because I do think that that is a good function of fantasy. I, I did a, a study in one of my classes in grad school. Uh, there was an essay that talked a lot about that. The, in fact, the thesis of the, of the essay was fantasy matters too much because it does things like that. Oh, there's another essay I read that was talking about in terms of the, uh, the context of fantasy for children and how you know fairy tales work on the work for children because their minds have not developed to the point where they can understand rational thought. So the outlandish concepts of fairy tales, you know, talking animals and all of that resounds with them because that's that's how their minds work. But on the other hand, the films that don't ignore the depression, that lean into that rage, not necessarily despair, because even Modern Times is not a despairing movie. But leaning into that and not letting people forget about it and using the art to tackle the issue head on mm-hmm. and not forget about it. In one way, it's a way for the filmmakers to tap into the cultural zeitgeist and make some money, hopefully. But I think if you're talking about just on a psychological level, we, we, you talk a lot about the, the purposes and uses of art on your podcast mm-hmm. and using it to not ignore the issues, but to tackle them. Maybe not even necessarily offer answers. You know what I'm getting at? Yeah, being able to explore. I mean, in a way, sometimes art is just another way of us talking through our thoughts, our feelings. Yeah, stories can certainly can certainly serve that purpose. And yeah, I, I would agree with you. I, I think that there is certainly room for both. And I think too much of an emphasis on one or the other, one is a disservice to what the diversity that, that storytelling, that, that art can be. But also in our personal lives, it's not healthy. It's not healthy for us to ever fixate too strongly on the problems of the world or try to completely ignore them. It's interesting. These these movies in particular, I don't know, say a lot about, yeah, like you said, both of the Kong movies are very much the escapist kind of thing. But there's there's definitely some interesting things in, uh, I, mean, I think a lot of gangster movies from that, that era had these ongoing stories of like a, a person trying to make their way and making the bad decisions and it all kind of caving in on them. Kind of like Anne a little bit in the, the first King Kong. She said that she was where she was because of bad luck. Yeah, I guess yeah. there's some of that. I mean, in the gangster movies, it's about someone like go, specifically going to a life of crime yeah. as opposed to just being unlucky. But yeah, taking money from the rich guy. Yeah, and yeah. I might be saying that may be more accurate now that I'm thinking about it more toward the later 30s movies than the early 30s ones because when the Hayes Code came in, that changed a little bit. They were very specific about making sure that they weren't glorifying crime, that, it, that there was a, if the person didn't, get redeemed then they at least got their just desserts it's interesting that you mentioned Hayes because i found a 
quotation from Mr. Hayes actually on this subject, uh, talking about movies. And I, I want to bring this up. I want to bring something else up here to go along, kind of play off of what we've been talking about with these two different approaches. There were actually those in the industry from what I understood from some of the commentators I was looking at, that actually believed they helped to stave off revolution. The film industry staved off revolution by providing escapist entertainment and I guess these these cathartic experiences with the for the films that did not ignore what was going on. Hmm. Which I find to be interesting. I think it's a little bit of an exaggeration because there was a lot of things going on at the time. But Mr. Hayes had some interesting things to say about that. So talking about movies, he said, no medium has contributed more greatly than the film to the maintenance of the national morale during a period featured by revolution, riot, and political turmoil in other countries. It has been the mission of the screen, without ignoring the serious social problems of the day, to reflect aspirations, optimism, and kindly humor in its entertainment. That's interesting. I imagine that the immediate tendency of people when they hear about the Hayes Code from the the production code from that time period, just assuming that, oh, that's because people were more restrictive then and, you know, they were... Uh, fuddy duddy, yeah, fuddy duddy, fuddy duddies who who hated puritanical, yeah, who who hated film and it was just trying to tolerate it. But yeah, I think for one, I remember the actual thing is that Hayes admired film, like that that quote shows. And at the time, it really was a way for Hollywood to police themselves. I think there's a lot of creative industries that at some point there's enough public pressure that they either have to police themselves or the government's going to step in and try to police them. Um, we see that <laughs> uh, right now with like social network, yeah. like Facebook and Twitter kind of stuff. If, it, it like, interesting fact, it was during the 30s that the FCC came into existence. Yeah, okay. 1935. Yeah, that sounds right. At some point, these these new upstart kind of communication thing is just his, history repeating themselves. Like if, if we don't get our act together, someone's going to do it for us. So the Hayes Code was not a governmental thing. Well, if I remember, I believe I, I believe it was more of a. Uh, He'll look into it for you. Yeah, that's that's the one that I know the like the M- MPAA rating system, for example, which basically that replaced was later. It. That was later. That was like like the sixties. But I know that basically replaced it, and that is that's a volunteer government sort of thing. But it's just be bad marketing anymore to not let them rate your movie. It's a it's a marketing thing, but it's but it's a good self uh, accountability method. Essentially, because I, I have heard like early 30s before pre Hayes Code, there were some movies that were really pushing the bounds. And mm, wait, I mean, King Kong was well, King Kong was, but overall, because the re releases got censored, right? Yeah, but but there were other ones that were far less scrupulous than King Kong was. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, I know that the some of those early Marx Brothers movies, what I was reading, would have gotten in, them in trouble later on with the Hayes Code because you know they were possibly and and some of those man, and maybe some of those restrictions were unnecessary. I mean, I know there was like one of them that dictated how long a, an on screen kiss could last, which is what made famous by. Hitchcock, because it was notorious? I think so, I think it was notorious. 1940, 41, somewhere around there? Where he tried to get around it by just having the two actors, they would start kissing, stop, share some dialogue, kiss again, instead of having a long kiss. So it was like, it's almost like his way of saying like, see, I'm not breaking any, uh, breaking a rule, (laughs) Uh uh but I'm still getting what I want. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Hitchcock loved doing these little subtle 
jabs at uh, <laughs> that kind of stuff. All that to say, listeners, I would say, you know, keep in mind, not only as you're watching King Kong or Son of Kong, but any of the 1930s films, think about the era in which this was made, because I do think it very much informs what they were doing, whether it was providing escapist entertainment, though not necessarily mindless escapist entertainment, or the ones that decide to channel the anxieties of the day in their storytelling. It's what makes the golden age of Hollywood a fascinating era of filmmaking because of the the unique circumstances that were going on at the time. Interesting. And I'll just ask this question and I don't really have an answer to it myself. I kind of suspect that the escapist films from the era get seen more often than the serious examining ones. I mean, there's certainly some of those that will get watched by hardcore film buffs. The Criterion Collection types. The Criterion Collection types. they'll, They'll dig into those gangster and the more like issue films, for lack of a better word. But I, I do think it's interesting. If people are going to watch an older movie, it tends to be more often a musical or a, or a genre sort of thing like this. Yeah, m- musicals were really coming into their own at this point as well, yeah. especially with the advent of talkie films. But I guess that's not necessarily something that's unique to just classic Hollywood. It might just be something that tends to be audiences' preferences in general. Films always reflect the time in which they were made. Even the ones that are meant to be escapist fantasy are still in some way tap- tapping into the anxieties of the day. It just happens to be different. In the 30s, it's a depression. You get to the 50s, it's the Cold War, the right. Red Scare. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, things like that. I mean, that goes into 50s, into the 80s, really. Yeah, like, uh, there, there was a lot of that. And then uh, films made, in, especially post 9-11, have been tapping into some of that anxiety mm. as well. The, you know, fear of surveillance the or having terrorists as the villains and you know and and all of these things you know uh, wars that won't end you know almost in a way kind of a throwback to the 70s post-vietnam that's what films always do it'll be interesting to see with your upcoming kong movies to see which category they fall in yes uh, which is a, a good way to transition because to let you know listeners the next big discussion episode will be King Kong Escapes from 1967, which was the second Japanese King Kong movie after King Kong vs. Godzilla. Yes, Jimmy, I'm skipping King Kong vs. Godzilla. Why? It's because I already did in-depth coverage of it on my other podcast, Kaiju Vision Radio. Actually, that's a good idea. I'll leave a link to it in the show notes so listeners get their fix with that as we move on to the next one. Because honestly, everything I said in that episode, I would just say in you know, another episode for this. So they can go listen to that instead of me you know, just producing another episode. Sounds kind of lazy, but I don't really care. <laughs> but I will not be ignoring King Kong versus Godzilla. No, I will be bringing on for a special mini-sode, John LeMay, who, re- as I mentioned, recently published a book called Kong Unmade by about unmade King Kong movies because, interestingly, we're going to talk about a couple of unmade King Kong movies that have ties to King Kong versus Godzilla. One being the original concept that got scrapped that was actually pitched by Willis O'Brien and then the unmade sequel to King Kong versus Godzilla that was written by Shinichi Sekizawa. So did any future Kong movies continue on the timeline that we have with uh, Son of Kong? Nope. Okay. Uh, They were all remakes and reboots after this. Okay. Yeah. So it really did sync with the island. Yes. (laughs) And 
joining me for King Kong Escapes will be your cohort and our friend, Nick Hayden. Woohoo! I'll be very curious to see how he responds to this one. He is the more talented half of our podcast, so be sure to tune in, folks. Do I have to pull a Carl Denham with you and tell you that you're not terrible? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not bad, but Nick Hayden is instantly the smartest guy in the room for most rooms he walks in. (laughs) He won't admit that. The fact that we're praising him on this podcast, he's going to be too humble to to even agree with us. (laughs) I'm sorry, Nick. We love you. All right. Well, I'm glad that you're able to come to the island again. Keep a hold of that golden ticket. You're more than welcome to come back. I've got a a few other films I think might be interesting to screen for you. Well, well, thank you. And uh, thank you, Jimmy, for uh, the ride. I know I inconvenienced you there a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I won't forget my microphone again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All right. Thank you very much, listeners. Until next time, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nathan Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is themonsterisla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wander on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Serax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Kowotani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus can be downloaded from ocremix.org. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and other fine podcatchers. Please rate and review the podcast to help spread the word about the show. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara! Sayonara!